This is a podcast brought to you by Tourism Geographies, an international journal of tourism, space, place, and environment, published by Taylor and Francis. In 2022, Tourism Geographies was ranked second in Scopus Site Score Tracker in the subject areas Tourism, Leisure, and Hospitality Management, and secondly, in Geography, Planning, and Development. In 2023, it's on track to be number one with a site score of 24.4 as at the 5th of August, 2023. Welcome to another episode of Tourism Geographies podcast. We have joining with us today, Dr. Gang J. Lee. Hi, Gang. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. All right. So do you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself, your background, your research interests before we start? Absolutely. Uh, well, first of all, thank you uh, for this opportunity to talk about my research and uh, my published article. Uh, again, I am Kang Lee. I am currently assistant professor uh, in the Department of Parks, Recreation and Tourism at the University of Utah. Previously, I was assistant professor at North Carolina State University. Um, so my research interest is, broadly speaking, social and environmental justice, especially race and ethnicity within the context of parks, outdoor recreation and tourism. And um, I try to provide new arguments, findings and insights and ultimately give voice to marginalized and disfranchised groups. So I see my research activity as sort of a, a tool for positive social change. Thank you so much. And this gives us a good segue into your recently published um, Tourism Geographies article um, titled The Myth of African-American Underrepresentation in Nature Tourism, which was recently accepted earlier this year. Do you want to tell us a bit of the background of that research? What inspired you in particular? Yes, most definitely. So the main topic of this article is an outdoor recreation phenomenon called Black underrepresentation or underparticipation. So the idea is that African-Americans or Blacks are uh, underrepresented in nature tourism. In the context of the U.S., it's usually um, national parks, national forests, state parks, and those great outdoors. And the term has been around for uh, more than decades, and the idea has been supported by some uh, survey data, some empirical evidence showing that there has been a clear uh, disparities in, uh, between white and blacks in na uh, national park visitation or forest, as well as many state parks and other outdoor recreation activities such as hunting and fishing. But my argument, uh, I guess my main argument in this paper is that what exactly, what justifies the use of the term under? Mm. Um, so under compared to what, right? Yes. So most of previous publications don't provide a clear explanation of the basis for the use of the term under. And they don't also describe how many more Black nature travelers will be uh, enough to make the uh, Black underrepresentation disappear. Um, so it's pretty ambiguous. And one might argue that the term underrepresentation or underparticipation was used because the proportion of African American nature tourists, say um, national parks or national forests, 
is smaller than their share of the total U.S. population. Uh, but now that doesn't really make sense because who say that the two figures needs to closely align with each other? Uh, do African Americans' nature tourism should consistent with their proportion of the U.S. population, right? So in other words, there is no any objective or scientific threshold or standard which distinguish over or under participation. So it's really about why centrism or normalization. And in fact, when I trace the origin of this term, black underrepresentation, um, I end up reading this report from uh, Outdoor Recreation Resource, Resources Review Commission, which is uh, often called ORC, O-R-R-R-C. Uh, this is one of the oldest, some of the most oldest documents on, I guess, empirical investigation on the racial and ethnic differences in outdoor recreation participation pattern in the United States. In their report, the report specifically say that Negroes, uh, that's a term that they used back then, Negroes do not engage in outdoor recreation as much as white Americans, right? So mm -hmm. see, this is uh, the, uh, the, now the basis is in white American. Uh, I mean, who would say that the blacks need to participate in outdoor recreation as much as white Americans? Yes. Right? So here we see the standard has been established. The standard, the benchmark that they are referring to is actually white Americans' outdoor recreation behaviors. And since then, this term has been circulated in many different publications without any critical discussions about sort of why we need to use this term. And the problem is that if we start to use this, uh, you know, the term, that it doesn't really help uh, thinking differently. In other words, nobody is saying that white Americans are overrepresented or overparticipating in nature. Everybody say that blacks are underrepresented or people of color are underrepresented. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a blame the victim situation because. It's not that blacks are not interested in outdoor recreation. It's because they has been historically barred from engaging in nature tourism because white Americans try to protect those beautiful places and keep them keep those places for themselves uh, rather than allowing you know black and people of color access to those beautiful places. So that was my uh, central argument. Not really linguistic analysis, but. Uh, we're really trying to share some critical insights about the way in which this term black underrepresentation has been coined and circulated in the uh, literature and, and in this country. Yes, and that's some interesting research findings that you sort of expounded on there because you find a lot of times just the baseline of most measurements, whether it's to do with um, representation in particular and that whole representation politics, it tends to sort of kind of hit the wall and stick in, in, in terms of how people use it, how people see it, even in terms of the marketing and promotion and, and even the target markets uh, uh, that are looked after in terms of nature or even um, environmental or ecotourism. Um, in particular, so that's some very interesting findings there. I, I noticed even you utilize the term or even sort of like a philosophy where you underpin the research in terms of identifying the white 
um, Savia Industry Complex, which is uh, something that was very interesting as well. Could you share a bit more on, on that specific um, finding? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm glad that you find that interesting. So why Savior Industry Complex? I guess it, uh, this idea has been, again, around for a while. And probably one person who engaged in more rigorous theorization or conceptualization was Cole, of which I cited in my article. Uh, so Cole metaphorically explained that why Savior Industry Complex has two, uh, excuse me, three stages. So first, in the morning, uh, white people first perpetuate injustice. They do something wrong. And second, the white people, in the afternoon, they heroically try to fix the issues that uh, or injustice they created. And the final stage in third, they garner recognitions or they get credit for addressing the issue in the evening. So in the morning, in the afternoon, and the evening, three-stage process, mm. <laughs> white Americans or white people create problems, and then, oh, they try to fix it, and then afterwards, they get credit for it. Uh, so yeah. I think a lot of, that's actually the second portion of my article, that I think the way in which a lot of uh, nature tourism destinations, agencies of nature tourism destination in the U.S. are currently operating quite similar to white savior industry complex because, I mean, if we look at the history of national parks, national parks are created with a very specific intention of uh, keeping those great outdoors for exclusively white individuals. Right? It has a lot of you know, historical uh, information. And then now we see that a lot of uh, sort of racial and ethnic disparities in terms of who is accessing these parks and who gets more benefit of visiting these places. And now the agencies are, okay, we need to increase diversity. We need to do something about this. But hey, this is a problem that originated from your own agency, right? So then after they initiate, you know, some kind of uh, outdoor recreation outreach programs or, you know, um, you know, trying to create diversity initiatives or inclusive uh, programs to change the demographic of visitors and the workforce. And then uh, the credit goes to the agency, right? The agency made a lot of effort to, in, you know, improve the diversity and inclusion, not only among visitors, but among their workforce. So. If we think about this, it's actually quite uh, closely aligned with this three-stage process that Paul articulated. And now, I'm not saying that that's, uh, you know, the current agency's effort to diversification or, you know, inclusiveness all wrong. That's not my, I guess, point. And the point is that if we don't manage this in a more sensitive and thoughtful manner, I think we have this risk of committing uh, this white savior industry complex. So that was uh, my second uh, argument in that paper. Okay, that's very interesting. And based on, 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 on this article in particular, again, sort of unpacking some new um, terminologies, is there a specific, I guess, parent discipline you feel that this came from and how it fits in with tourism geographies in particular? Uh-huh. 
I think uh, disciplinary speaking, it's uh, uh, heavily focusing on history and mm -hmm. sociology. Uh, mm -hmm. I think those are the two primary sort of disciplinary, uh, disciplinary <laughs> backgrounds of this article. So when it comes to data collection, I mean, the, uh, I didn't collect empirical uh, data mm -hmm. for this. This is conceptual paper. Yeah. So most of these arguments are based on previous publication, reviewing some old uh, you know, historical, not really historical documents, but previous articles. Mm. So it's more like a historical and sociological investigation. Yeah, because that was going to be my follow-up question. You know, what sort of research now in terms of empirical findings do you have probably on your research agenda? Is there any projects that you're probably working on or even some sort of knowledge engagement or, or um, public engagement? in terms of at least letting people in these different publics understand, you know, uh -huh. how these terminologies could be impactful and have implications for Black travelers in particular. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned it. So it's not so much about the term itself, mm -hmm. uh, but I try to expand a similar argument. I try to expand this argument further and embrace the issues of a class and sex in terms of who is visiting nature tourism. And mm -hmm. so one project that I'm currently working on is I, uh, I sign a book contract and uh, the book, so I'm writing manuscript, and this is about history of American public parks. Now, a lot of books has been published, a lot of <laughs> books and articles have been published on uh, public parks in the United States. But most of them are focusing on uh, one particular park or one particular park system, such as national parks or state parks. I guess my intention of this book is to identify some of the most disturbing and um, oppressive patterns of marginalization and disfranchisements throughout community park, state park, and national parks in the United States. So I'm reviewing the beginning of these three types of park systems in the United States and showing some, you know, marginalizations and disfranchisements against the indigenous people, women, people of color, and low income and the poor. So that's one project that I'm working on. Yeah. Um, another project that I'm also working on, this is probably more empirically based. So this project has been funded by North Carolina State Park. And a group of researchers, including myself, we collected an uh, online survey of people of color who live in the state of North Carolina and examined their perception of uh, discrimination when they visit parks. Uh, there has been mixed discussions about this. Some uh, qualitative researchers and ethnographic researchers clearly documented that many people of color feel unsafe or even feel fear when they visit outdoors or when they engage in outdoor recreation activities. Uh, but there has been no uh, quantitative assessment of the extent to which people of color feel discriminated or afraid of discrimination when they visit outdoor recreation destinations. So I think uh, I, I presented some of these findings at the last leisure uh, conference uh, of leisure studies associations. And I hope to, to conduct, uh, conduct more further analysis and, and get it published. Yes, very holistic um, research you're doing there in terms of looking at the whole system. And I'm very interested and curious to, to read more about it, especially in terms of the indigenous elements 
being that as my research background, but also to when you spoke about earlier, the baseline being white travelers mostly, whereas we do know most indigenous um, populations sort of are situated in nature. Nature is seen as, as part of them. So that will be very interesting research indeed. So we're about to switch gears a little bit, where I will just okay. get to know you a bit more, because at this point, I think in um, the tourism geographies community, we tend to like to connect our agents of knowledge exchange and encourage humanizing um, tourism and geographic research. So I would just want to ask you, um, based on, on your background, you know, do you have any specific advice for any researchers coming, especially in this space in particular, any challenges you may want to highlight? Oh, okay. Wow. That's a really good question. And I'm not sure I'm, I'm fully prepared for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I will say that reflecting upon my own uh, research trajectory and experiences, engaging in social and environmental justice research, to me, this is more like a lifestyle. Mm. Um, someone can say that, hey, I published something about racism, I published something about sexism, and here's the data, and here's the results. Uh, to me, that's uh, that doesn't, I mean, that's important, but that doesn't define uh, whether that person is a social or environmental justice researcher. To me, uh, it's your deliberate, intentional way of examining, identifying the uh, issues and trying to solve those issues through your scholarships and uh, dissemination of uh, the knowledge. All uh, right. So when I... I guess my recommendation is that first, be aware of those challenges. And if you are not truly committed and interested in this space, it could be very stressful space. Uh, So that's one thing that I want to mention. And I also say that uh, this is not only about, uh, you know, someone who focusing on social or environmental justice issues, more like uh, graduate students in general. I always tell that focus on something that uh, makes you excited. Do not follow the trends and follow your heart. It sounds so cliche, but uh, what I mean by this is that, you know, research landscape uh, is always changing. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes we have new uh, research method, big data analysis, social media analysis. So things always change and evolve. And it's supposed to be that way because society is constantly evolving. But if we try to follow the trends, oh, this is a hot topic. So I want to focus on this topic. Oh, this uh, social justice is a hot. Uh, everybody's focusing on. So I, I want to study this. Well, you you can uh, you know outpace the trends. You uh, it doesn't really sustainable. It's not sustainable. So I always encourage students to try to find the topics that makes them excited, uh, makes them feel meaning of their research and meaning uh, meaning of their life by doing certain research. So that will be my recommendation. And very sage advice indeed. <laughs> Being in this space, yes, it, it could be very draining and you really do have to have a passion and a purpose. So in terms of um, future research, you explained some of the projects you're currently doing, some of the grants um, that you submitted and books that you intend to write. Um, but is there anyone out there, um, whether it's a tourism geographer in this space, that you are hoping to collaborate one day and why? <laughs> oh, uh, wow, that's a 
Well, there are so many individuals that I would like yes. to collaborate with. <laughs> so, uh, you don't want to get anyone jealous now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't I haven't thought about specific individuals' name. Mm. Um, so, but yeah, I, I am always open to uh, research collaborations, and in fact, I learn I have learned so much from working with other uh, phenomenon researchers. So yes. I I am always curious of you know. How can we establish new collaboration? How can we how, how can we identify these overlaps between us? Yes, indeed. And it's interesting because the last two um, interviews we covered was with some of your colleagues um, from the reset team, um, oh. Clifford Lewis and, and Stephanie Benjamin. So it's nice oh, to see. They are phenomenal yes. researchers. Yes, it's nice to see. You know, we all are working together to kind of spotlight some of these key issues that are really worth um, um, shedding light on. So last question, or I guess uh, a comment, it's kind of our little Chinese whispers where we have um, a question we leave for the next interviewee. And Cliff actually left this this question for you. Um, so feel free to answer it and you could also leave a question for the next person. So he was wondering, what book are you currently reading in your leisure time? Oh, leisure time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we don't always do research. We need to relax sometimes. <laughs> well, it's it's kind of embarrassing, but the answer is I, I am not reading any books for my leisure. However, yeah. I am reading a lot of different books for my own research currently. Oh, nice. uh, in fact, uh, if you, if uh, there are piles of books currently on my desk, and some of them, since I'm working on a book chapter focusing on national parks, a lot of mm -hmm. those books are about American history and the environmental history in the context of the uh, United States. Uh, one book that I really enjoy, this may not be specifically National Park, is A People's History of the United States, mm. written by Howard Zinn. And then another book is Lies My Teacher Told Me, uh, written by James Lawrence. Both of these books really uh, challenges, uh, lack of a better term, traditional way of understanding American history, such yeah. as, you know, uh, glorifying the arrival of Columbus, and you know uh, he was a really great explorer. Oh yeah, but he initiated you know uh, transatlantic slave. He basically committed genocide of course these the American continents and basically wipe out all the civilization and people. And so we don't really talk about that, right? So I re those are the two books that I really enjoy. Oh, that's very interesting. I might have a, a look at myself. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And I do wish you all the best in, in your upcoming book and your upcoming projects. Have a good day, Jerry. See you. See you. Thank you so much for having me again. Appreciate thank, it. Thank you so much. Thank you to our guests and thank you, our dear listeners, for joining us on this episode of the Tourism Geographies podcast. We look forward to you tuning in to the next episode. I am a fear holder. Bye for now.